We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Jeffrey Karam. Jeffrey is an assistant professor of political science at the Lebanese American University and a research associate at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs Middle East Initiative. He is the editor of the Middle East in 1958, Reimagining a Revolutionary Year. Links to the book are in the details box, as well as his full bio. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. saying thank you, Jeffrey, for willing to postpone our initial scheduled episode. Uh, we had agreed to record last week, but you were very kind. Um, I mentioned that my grandmother passed away in Tripoli, and I rushed north, and we sort of, we said we could wait a bit, and uh, I was able to release a very personal episode, actually two, one about her, conversations with her, and then my own reflections about losing her. And I know this is a very different subject than what we're going to get into, but the truth is I love doing both. I love sharing stories and storytelling, and I also love diving deep into all that is modern Lebanese history, and they kind of go well together. And uh, that, that's my way of saying thank you for letting me uh, reflect on her for a few days and uh, sort of recalibrate a bit for the discussion we're going to get into. And the second thing I'll mention, and we kind of spoke about this before starting, it's my second time apologizing for the shadows, but the good news is the conversation will be so deep and so rewarding that nobody will notice that I'm reflecting, but this will get fixed post-lockdown. I'd like to start off by saying that this is a subject that I'm very curious about because I often reference it without the astute knowledge necessary. And I think... In a way, there's, a, there's enough material that dives into 1940, uh, 1958. Um, you, can, you can look all over the place. You'll find sort of articles written and, and very sort of very deep, uh, very astute observations of that year and its impact on the region, but it's scattered. And it's in a way laborious to go and sort of dive deep unless you're a scholar and maybe have the patience or the sort of... Uh, <laughs> The, uh, the personality necessary to spend time in the archives doing that. But then I stumbled upon your book and it's sort of, for me, it's the manual. Now, whenever I need to think about 1958, I can literally just jump to the book. And I'm going to start off by just saying it. It's the Middle East in 1958, reimagining a revolutionary year. Um, it's edited by you and chapters that sort of break it down, the whole thing foreign policy issues, socioeconomic issues. Lebanon is in a way central to the story. Um, and I, I love the sort of, in a way, the introduction, the, the, the forward. Uh, I think, uh, if I hope, hope his name is Salim Yaqub, if I'm not mistaken. That's, yes, yep. Salim Yaqub. Yep. 
it's all, that is storytelling. He starts it off by sort of sharing a story that we're all, we all know about, but we don't really know about. And I'm talking about maybe our generation in particular. We've only heard about 1958. We have no idea what it was like to live that year. At the same time, there's a lot of connection to what's happening today. It's a very sort of like a broad, maybe perhaps at times vague introduction, but I think it's okay because there's, there's a lot to get into. And maybe we can start with the, the issues of foreign policy and the importance of foreign policy, despite local attempts to change everything. And the reason I'm starting this way is because 2019, all the rhetoric is domestic, 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 yet foreign policy seems to be a core issue. Even though it's not discussed on the streets regularly, it's still critical. And when I say foreign policy, I don't mean Lebanon's foreign policy. I mean, in general, regional, uh, regional policies towards Lebanon, geopolitical considerations that impact Lebanon. And to me, reading 1958 and looking back in 1958, there seems to be something there where you have domestic considerations, maybe a push for change, and then geopolitical considerations, sort of, they drive the story and foreign policy becomes the story. If we can start there, and whether or not that's, that's a correct framing of Lebanon's predicament, 1958, 2019, and different protests that happened in between, in particular 2005, that at the end of the day, domestic considerations are outweighed, and that you cannot really change things from within without considering regional attitudes, international calculations. And there's a lot there, and we can dive deep into this. But maybe just that kind of, that question, that foreign policy is, in a way, the main issue at play. So, Roni, let me begin by saying that, again, my condolences to you. And it was really um, inspiring to uh, follow the episodes that you recorded, uh, reflecting on your grandma and being able to use this uh, great platform. I'm a fan of this platform and it was really nice to take that short break and uh, I thank you for really uh, being able to regain um, your sanity and more importantly <laughs> being able to return after devastating loss because during COVID honestly I'll just begin this on a personal note I, I've lost several uh, relatives in my family death is becoming so normalized so it, it happens, we can use old age as an argument, but in reality, when you think about COVID and non-COVID related consequences, uh, we are living through very harsh times and our ability to be able to regain focus, regain our strength is something that's very important. And I applaud you for doing that and hosting this episode re relatively really quick after the loss in your family. So sorry again for that and my condolences. Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. I worked 72 hours straight. I actually didn't get I, the chance to mourn. I just put that episode together. And I realized that when you were mentioning how quick you were able to turn this all around. And yeah. kudos to you for doing that. And she will live on in your memories and the beautiful episodes that you've shared with uh, not only your followers, but even that have an impact for how all of us, not only in Lebanon, but around the world, are dealing with death regardless of the circumstances, but the idea of grief, the idea of being able to say goodbye to someone 
the idea of closure are all contested. So uh, it, is a, it is a negative note to begin our conversation, but it's also an important one to reflect on. And thanks again for inviting me and for hosting me. Thank you. Um, you, uh, you, you touched on something that's very important. Um, the relationship between domestic considerations and foreign policy realities. And the book on many levels, as you've mentioned, uh, we have scattered literature on the moment of 1958. Much of the literature, literature is divided in a way of saying, we look at 1958 as if it's an outlier mm-hmm. and the longer history of uh, politics of change, of contestation, of protests, of revolutions, of state formation. However, when we read against the grain of the archives and we dig deeper, as the book actually goes into by looking at Arab states, non-Arab states, but also bringing in the viewpoints of international actors, it becomes very clear that much of the grievances that are discussed in the book, and as you eloquently mentioned, that are still relevant in 2005, 2015, 2019 in Lebanon, are very similar. And when I say similar, we are tracing the agency of local movements, the agency of local actors, but there's always a ceiling. And that ceiling, as you mentioned, really has to do with the bigger question of how does this fit in international calculations, in foreign policy orientations. So much of the debate about the 50s really had to do with the idea of neutrality. Is it something that's achievable? And if it's gonna be achievable, how is it gonna be achievable in the country that gained independence in 1943 out of a regional arrangement. It wasn't only a local argument driven by political powers and actors in the country, but also a very, I would say, intense uh, uh, pact between the French and the British at that point in time. The Americans were not yet that vocal. And the order started to unravel quickly after 1943 with the events that occurred in 1948, with the Nakba, and then with the elections, and then with the right white revolution against Bashar al-Khuri in 1952. So all the signs, all the writing on the wall leading up to 1958 was a clear testament that this system is not really working, or if it's working, it's constantly going to need regional backing and international intervention. And, And what that meant in 1958 was really the bigger questions that were on the table really had to do with whether Lebanon as a model of coexistence, and we can talk more about this, whether it is a false model of coexistence or a model that actually we can think about in terms of a workable solution for what scholars like to call, quote unquote, a solution for a deeply divided society, whether that was really tenable on the level of the state, on the level of people, or was it really again and again, the calculations of a very strict, very small, limited number of leaders, the political elite, and to what extent were they able to leverage their personal interests, their personal problems by bringing in an nationalizing and regionalizing their debate, their grievances, their wishes against one another. So what I'm describing 
about 1958 could really, if we drop the pronouns, because I haven't mentioned even one name so far, but the characterization of the politics of bickering on the eve of 1958, the elections in 1957, the rigging of the elections in 1957, debates re revolving around the possibility of introducing an amendment to the constitution in Lebanon yes. for the president at that point in time to be able to say in term for another six years or introduce some kind of amendment is very similar to the news that's being circulated in Lebanon over the last two, three days. The possibility of introducing an amendment yes. to maintain the status quo. And the idea of maintaining the status quo is always in a way characterized as a solution to a problem that's bigger than you, me, and individual interests. And that has to do with polarization that we can think of. But we're only going to replace the actors to a certain extent and be able to say we are still at the forefront of whether Lebanon, in terms of rulers that are elected, whether we accept the results or not, it's still a democratic process whether we can achieve genuine neutrality. So much of the debate about 58, whether we were thinking about it in terms of the model that emerged and still remains a cornerstone of the Nice politics, the model of no victor, no vanquished, that was the resolution to the crisis, the revolution that right. happened in 1958. And that still resonates this very day where no one can actually win, but we can only win through consensus. So what has really changed by replacing names or thinking about differences is that the internationalization of different crises, and as we saw what happened after August 4, was very similar to the debate that we saw, even though nothing compares to August 4, and let's be honest about that. Of course, of course. But the, the idea that Lebanon should survive, Lebanon should be on the agenda of foreign players, and the idea that we need to attach ourselves to our old colonial powers, like be it France or to a certain extent having a better relationship with the United States of America. If I were to show you archives right now that are talking about these debates in 1958, they're exactly similar when it comes to protests in the street, when it comes to the use of tear gas, when it comes to the use of the military, the Lebanese armed forces to maintain the status quo. So there are so many parallels that we can drawn. But the most important point that I'm going to end with, with your, uh, on this note and this question really has to do with the idea that I, as a political scientist, I'm very cautious about drawing these broad linkages. Mm -hmm. But I cannot remove, remove the multifaceted argument that, that I'm making that talks about the interplay between local groups pushing for, fighting for, really driven by grievances, the same triggers regarding an, an employment, regarding opportunities for the youth, inflation, right? No social security. And then the regional aspects of how can certain leaders be able to piggyback or to a certain extent benefit from receiving foreign support in order to use it against local allies. And much of the discussion that we can think of and talk about is really, really replacing some names, replacing some poles, replacing some blocks in the region. But any characterization of that moment in time leading up to 1958, which Malcolm Kerr famously called the Arab Cold War and has become yeah. one of the most important ways of framing the politics of bickering and the politics of alliances, 
between Arab states and non-Arab states, whether they're closer to the West or they're closer to the Soviet Union, even though much of the literature that has actually framed this moment in the Middle East as one that's only understood through a Cold War lens has right now been debunked and has right now been challenged. It's much more complicated than that when you go beyond the East versus West, capitalism versus communism, and be able to think about these grievances taking different shapes and forms. So we can talk more about this, but it's, it's very important to keep in mind that we are not talking about a straight line from the Nahda to 2019, but we're talking about a long durée of processes that have different shapes, different forms that do unfold. And when they unfold, it's important to understand that it has never unfolded in a way where it was sufficient to be able to say local grievances alone are going to be able to lead to change. It's always been a formula, as you mentioned, where it's local grievances coupled with regional considerations and more importantly, what's happening on the international stage and whether to a certain extent the tilt can go closer to the aspirations of what thousands and tens of thousands of people want or whether it's going to come back down to a very narrow pact that's really going to maintain the status quo rather than lead to any drastic change. And unfortunately, I can say this in 2021, much of what we've seen has been a way of revamping the same status quo, changing some names, looking for new contenders to the system. But much of the constants that we have in terms of consensus and whatever that means in a country like Lebanon or what does that mean in countries around the world that, that actually have problems when it comes to no functioning institutions, no accountability, much of the debates have not really changed. And this is the interesting part from a scholarly standpoint, but also a very depressing uh, level or angle, if you want, to think about it on a practical level. It's like, if we've been down this road so many times, then why aren't things right now any way different? And the, the answer lies really in looking at this connection between several levels and several factors, rather than putting too much attention to local dynamics, the book, And what we do in different chapters is really to show that we need to adopt a multifaceted, inter-multi-layered perspective to be able to understand why these moments often translate into some shape or form of change or some kind of reform, or why are they actually defeated? Or to a certain extent, why do they get stalled? And this is what we're observing right now. There is the loss of momentum, even though in the last few days, it's, uh, we can see the street trying to regain, trying to reclaim some part of what really transpired after October 2019. But I would say to a certain extent, time will tell whether this, again, will be the second wave of 2019 or in the longer durée, I can't keep count anymore of which wave or which cycle are we in, not only in Lebanon, but if you want to compare it in terms of phases of the first wave, the second wave or the third wave. And this is something we can talk about before the Cold War, during the Cold War, after the Cold War. And just recently, if you look at Sudan, you look at Algeria, you look at Iraq, you look at Lebanon, and you compare it to other processes around the world, even in France and Chile, it becomes very clear that the world is boiling, but it's boiling down to the same concerns that are not exceptional to the Middle East, exceptional to the Arab world, exceptional to live on, but actually 
show problems, deficiencies in how states function and the agency and ability of really crafting and pushing for new change. Reading the book, I was reminded about many things that I think I read as, a, as an undergraduate or graduate student years back. And you sort of, you let go of things like France's involvement in the Middle East, Algeria, uh, Britain, and Egypt, even America and Syria, things that are from a bygone era. And I liked reading the almost the buildup to 1958, as opposed to just 1958 in itself. And I'm just going to go back to one point, which we sort of we touched on, which is neutrality. And I, I get the idea from many different sort of all types of literature on this subject that if there ever was a period of Lebanon's history, modern Lebanese history, that was actually there was a policy of neutrality, a foreign policy of neutrality, it's 1943 to maybe 1957 sort of that sort of that limited stretch and that there's never really been a, a, a proactive disassociation policy since. Is that a correct way of understanding the, the initial independent years leading up to 1958, that there was a maybe an attempt to shield at least Lebanon from those regional dynamics and try to keep Lebanon stable enough? And of course it didn't happen and we end up with a mini civil war in 1958. But that is the only stretch of time that there was a something like neutrality in Lebanon. I would say the way that that, that would be framed if you want to talk about that 14 year period, 13 year period, give or take, was really shades of neutrality with the element of buying time. Mm. So if you mm. really think about neutrality in the sense of it's not East or West, or it's not going to really push for a certain model of governance, then that is problematic. Because one of the biggest debates leading up to 1958 was that we don't have a problem by being pro-Western, not only on the level of the government, but also on the level of the people, right? Mm, mm. We are benefiting, quote unquote, and I say quote unquote, because even that benefit at that point in time needs to be qualified, who is benefiting more. If we think about point four, if we think about tap line, the oil lines that were connected between Saudi Arabia and Zahrani in the south, the IPC line connecting the Iraqi petroleum company between Britain and ending up in Tripoli. We look at this and we think about the narrow interests of a handful of people. But neutrality was a very important car to be able to mobilize the masses until you're able to craft a new sort of settlement or a new pact where mm. you can use your influence and you can use foreign entities to be able to score and to be able to leverage your own position over the others. So even when we think about Suez, for example, the Suez crisis, there was a big debate in Lebanon trying to pressure the pro-Western government at that point in time to break off ties with Britain and France. It's right. like, this is yeah. not acceptable, right? Yeah. Israel, France, Britain attacking Egypt because Egypt decided to nationalize its own, its own water passage, right? And that didn't really fly. And even in, in archives and in, in conversations with many that were considered to be in the opposition, specifically after the defeat of the, in the elections of 1957, we're very clear to say that we don't have a problem with the West or a problem with America per se, but we have a personal problem with this president trying to stay in office for another term. 
But when you think about neutrality, we have to think about it on two levels. On the level of the state, it was a way to maintain some shape or form what was agreed upon in the National Pact in 1943. That we're not going to be too close to the West. We're not going to be too close yeah. to the East. We're going to maintain an Arab face, but we're going to maintain a, a very, very uh, Western-friendly uh, economy, right? In right. terms of development, in terms of projects, in terms of social security, we're going to allow for suffrage, right? We're going to, uh, we're going to invite women to vote. We're going to push for bank secrecy. So when you're thinking about the banking system at that point in time, no one was actually against Lebanon taking a very close direction to being sort of very, very distant from what we saw as the beginning of Arab socialism as an experience in different governments, be it Egypt or elsewhere. There was a very strong commitment from local leaders, regardless of whether they belong to parties across the political spectrum, to make sure that Lebanon's economy will remain insulated from pressures that actually were happening in other countries. So when we talk about neutrality, I, I, it's important to be able to nuance that and say, well, neutrality was a model used by every single sitting president and prime minister and cabinet and even parliament. But neutrality has to be explained in a way of saying, well, it's really to bring about some kind of added pressure where there's always a card that you can use and be able to leverage and say, uh, Mr. President or Mr. Prime Minister, you're getting too close to the West. And this is something that is a violation to what we agreed upon. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that was really happening. Even though mm. we can talk more about this, at that point in time, much of the archives offer a very clear perception of Lebanon more than other countries. And I, here we can talk about Saudi Arabia, we can talk about Jordan, and obviously we can talk about Iran. Being really close to the, to the West, being part of America's global uh, strategy of containment. But Lebanon was very vocal in a way of saying that we are fine with everything that's been going on in terms of projects, in terms of development, in terms of banking, in terms of hospitals, in terms of universities, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we cannot get out of our Arab brethren, right? We cannot get out of our Arab sisters and brothers when it comes to our foreign policy orientation, but we need to be very clear on the limits of revolutionary Arab nationalism and what that entails in Lebanon with Nasser at that point in time, and whether we can actually have a Lebanese model, if you want, of a very strong nationalist anti-imperial uh, movement that actually was trying to seek an alternative and that alternative did not materialize. So it's important mm. to keep in mind that when we talk about neutrality, uh, I would say that you are accurate in your hunch in saying that relatively speaking, once we compare it to what happened after 58 and what led to the, the second civil war in 1975, yeah. that neutrality is really in question because of the vivid experiences of many local groups in Lebanon seeking direct support, receiving support from regional actors and international actors. And to a certain extent, in the period between 43 and 58, I'm not going to say it wasn't there, but it was more muted. And mm, we can talk more mm. about the elections of 57. The elections of 57 and how they were engineered speaks volumes to the lack of neutrality when it comes to Lebanese politics, how it happened and how it unfolded. But I'll keep it at there for now. No, but actually, I appreciate that segue because I think it's, it's towards the end of the book or sort of 
it's by chapter 13 that Lebanon is sort of taking center stage. It's a chapter uh, titled The Crisis of 1958 in Lebanon and Political Rivalries by Caroline Caroline Ati, I hope I said that right, Caroline yep. Ati. There, there's a lot of questions that are answered in this chapter, and, and one is sort of re, reinterpreting uh, for Edgeheb in a way, and also sort of uh, re-examining his role in Lebanon and, and what led to his, his presidency. And I, I appreciate the way she sort of, she starts off by, in a way, asking a bold question, which I think a lot of us ask without, re- without really understanding 1958. She says, how do we classify the events of 1958? And it's sort of the first question. For Edgeheb, in my mind, is always this man who stood against Nasser on the border. In the United Arab Republic, Syria, Nasser's meeting him at the border, and they're doing that famous sort of photo moment yeah. where the, the table's at the border and Fouedge Heb is not, he's in a way defending Lebanon's sovereignty from Arab nationalism, if that's the interpretation from it. Yet, yeah. yet, at the same time, Lebanon fundamentally, I mean, there's, there's no, these borders are so fluid that even with that military figure at the helm, and even that sort of attempt at real, real state building, uh, I mean, every single conflict, every single issue, every single ism in the region impacts Lebanon thereafter. And would it be appropriate to say that Fouedge Heb is a, he's not the sovereigntist that we like to think of, rather than he's just a reaction to the failure of the national pact, mean, meaning that Camille Shamoun and that dance that didn't work and the elections I think that you're hinting at earlier, that inability to do what I think was attempted early on, which is compromise and this sort of consociational confessional dialogue, meeting halfway, that that did not work. And for Edgeheb is the beginning of the sort of collapse of the state rather than the savior or the state builder. Because I, I get the feeling from that chapter that we should not be so nostalgic for someone like for Edgeheb. We should actually maybe look at him as sort of that's the inevitable conclusion that the national pact and compromise and that kind of way of governing, even neutrality, this was a flickering moment. And then thereafter, Lebanon is sort of is sucked into every single conflict that you could imagine from 1958 onwards. And I hope I'm asking this the right way that I, I sort of second guessed my relationship with for Edgeheb after reading this book and in particular that chapter. And I, <laughs> I don't know if that's the same for you, if there's sort of a different way of looking at him as, as a result of sort of re-examining everything that led to 1958. Um, in, in reality, the way that you framed it is, is really a spectacular way of thinking about it for several reasons. And I'm going I'm to try, try to be short on this because this is such an important issue that really talks about even debates today when people are drawing comparisons to we have a president right now of the Republic who is a military commander. He was right. preceded by a military commander and he was yes. preceded by a military commander. And our problem, Roni, to be quite honest, is that sometimes our metrics of comparison are flawed, right? Mm. We think about sort of, it was so bad under President X that when President Y comes into office and does one small or slight change, the world praises that. Let's think about Fuad for a moment. And we have to agree that, yes, there are some issues in Shahabism that have, have to do with building institutions, has to do with really thinking about questions of social security, 
thinking about our civil service branch. These are things that no one can deny that occurred under his presidency. Mm. But we also have to think about the deuxième bureau, Maktab al-Tana. The deuxième bureau, very yes. important to think about that. Yeah. We also have to think about uh, the attempted coup that occurred in 1961, right? In the early hours of December 31, 1961, January 1, 1962. This was, this was happened, this was originally planned and executed by members of the Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party. But this was a very big testament that something in the system is not working, something mm -hmm. is broken, there is a level of frustration, and there's a great book by Adel Shara about the politics of frustration in 1961, which shows another picture of Shihab and saying everything that you described in comparison to President Shamoun being very close to the US ambassador in Lebanon, being very mm -hmm. close to America, Uh, getting support from the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon and others, and this is well documented, it's not only in the book, but it's well documented in archives, to crush his domestic opponents that were basically part of the same alliance that brought him to the presidency in 1952. And here we're talking about Kamal Jumlat, we're talking about Saab Slim, we're talking about the same individuals that together formed an alliance against Bashar al-Khoury in 1952, were the same ones that were kicked out of parliament, lost their seats because the elections were rigged in 1957. So when you compare that, and then you think about Fouad Shab, the 10th thing that you described, having a distance from Nasser, well, in comparative terms, that's going to show that Lebanon really pushed for a very neutral stance. It's not really going to be close to America or close to the Soviet Union. It's going to understand Nasser. It's going to accommodate the rise of revolutionary Arab nationalists in Lebanon. But on the other end, we're thinking about structural problems in the country. Yes, we're going to build institutions. Yes, we're going to try to make the service more impartial. But we, have, we don't have to forget also a very important segment about Shahabism was really um, our balance of civil military relations started to basically fall out of balance. Let's put it that way, to put right. it mildly. Yes, yeah. So when, when you think about that balance and you want to compare that and moving forward to Hello and then moving forward to Frenji and then Sarkis and the beginning of the war, right. there's yeah. always been an attempt by really understanding the limits of having the Lebanese armed forces getting involved in politics because they were getting involved. And then thinking about that in today's discourse, when it comes to providing aid, giving out relief efforts, it's still the Lebanese armed forces. So we have to think about Shihab on both levels and say, well, let's be nostalgic about the part where someone said we're going to build institutions, but he said, I'm going to revamp the system as well. Shihab was calling for abolishing political sectarianism, right? But then right. he said, well, I can't do that. I have to work within the confines of the national pact, which I know doesn't work. But we have, to, we have to try to accommodate it. And then I'm going to stay in office for six years, and that's it. And then we see that attempts up to the Civil War where everyone's attempting to say, I'm going to take a distance from my, some distance from my predecessor to try to craft something new. But mm. that something new has to be within the confines of an established order that we think is still tenable. Even though the writing was on the wall, right? We had all the signs in the world that this is not working, right? Yeah, and and yeah. it wasn't only a moment of 43 or a moment of the Nakba in 1948 or the moment of the Nexa in 1967 or the Cairo, Cairo Accords or the Melkar Protocols in 1973 or the beginning of the Civil War. Because even if you think about the Civil War in 1977, there was an attempt to think about revamping the National Pact revamping what actually happened in Ta'if later on. The first draft of Ta'if in terms of 
we need to think about this Christian-Muslim ratio. We need to understand the confines yes, of power right. sharing. Yeah. Happened in 77. Yeah. So why the hell did we go for another 12 years of skirmishes, regional problems, internationalization of the Lebanese civil war, intra-sectarian fighting, uh, really thinking about all the issues that I'm not going to say could have been avoided, but if we're going to come back to the same table and debate what resurfaced in 1958, no victory, no vanquished, and then come to it in 1977 and say that there is a model out of this. The model out of this is really abolishing political sectarianism or at least making things more equal, if you want. And it was never about equality as much as it was sort of making sure that we have a consensus that actually happened in 1932. We haven't had one since then, but trying to take into account new changes. And then people go back to Shab and say, that was the moment where we had a state and then it collapsed. But the idea is that he inherited a state that was not that strong, quote unquote, or wasn't really on the verge of really what we expect, or what is a textbook definition of a strong state without the military aspect of it. If we're talking about strong economy, if we're talking about development, mm -hmm. if we're talking about fair distribution of resources, if we're talking about lack of grievances or no grievances whatsoever, we scale, unfortunately, and we score very poorly there. But if we're talking about a strong state in terms of an actual presence of the military being bigger, stronger, adding more troops, adding more sectors in society, Lebanon's role at that point in time being very instrumental in Cold War considerations and thinking about the coup that occurred in 1961 does paint a very different picture of Shihab. And, and Caroline's chapter, and she has a very good book also uh, on Lebanon in the 1950s, is really one of one of the few takes, if you want, that actually try to say that, yes, there are many positives to think about Shihab, but let's be clear to how we understand some of these issues, some of these problems, rather than just fall victim into the trope of it was a golden era and a golden era of nostalgia and an era of uh, development and an era of like economic growth, because some of some of these are true. But we mm -hmm. have to be qualified against the bigger background of if things were working that much, then why constantly there is a constant debate with every new president, every new cabinet of ministers, that this system has to be revamped. So I, I think she have the way that you framed it is that, well, there are things that happened under his presidency that still matter to today, right? But we have to take the bigger picture. And the bigger picture really has to speak to other remnants of that system that we still have today, which is the norm of having a commander of the Lebanese armed forces become president. And that has become a feature that we've seen with several presidents, be it from President Lahoud to President Sulaiman and to President Hon right now. So that has created a sort of precedent and unfortunately has created to a certain extent, I would say, an illusion for most commanders in chief of Lebanese armed forces that once things are out of hand, there is no balance, then we can be the consensus candidate. How many times have we heard about this uh, person has to be a consensus candidate because the Lebanese armed forces are an impartial organization. There's the right confessional balance in it. So that person can really take a step back from everyone. But what we've seen over time is that that needs to be qualified and that needs to be fleshed out to understand both the positives, but also the many negatives that have to do with not finding a accurate and normal balance in civil military relations. You know, it's interesting, even, I mean, although he was president elect, 
but even Bashir Ismail was a military man, a militia man in that sense. But I mean, there's the, even that sort of era as well. And his brother sort of fills in, but it's that, that relationship is sort of, it, it's defined modern Lebanon. And it's, it's, yep. but I like the way you're saying it, that for Ejhab is associated with, with the state or attempts maybe at attempts at curtailing some of the political parties that have sort of we 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 all know well and sort of taking taking some power away from the old guard and it doesn't last yet you still see military men sort of in power in the last three presidents in particular is that a byproduct of of uh, regional problems that the Lebanese army is sort of the one that ends up or for the most part is the one delivering candidates that there's always conflict and therefore you need someone like that to bring some consensus? Because I'm, I'm curious why it's, why it's a repeated pattern. Well, much of, much of the discourse re- re- regarding and surrounding uh, this discussion really has to do with whether this institution is really impartial or not. Mm-hmm. And when we think mm-hmm. about an impartial institution, there have there have been several attempts where the military was able not to get too involved. I'm not going to say not involved, not too involved. So mm-hmm. in 1952, um, the military under Fahad Shab at that point in time refused to go against the revolutionaries, even though it was the White Revolution. They decided not to use force. In 58, mm-hmm. it was a very tactical use of force, very strategic in a way of saying the president wanted the Lebanese armed forces to go really crack down on the opposition. And Fouad Shab said no. And much of the debate about Fouad Shab moving forward was really, did he do it because he was really trying to preserve the sectarian balance of the Lebanese armed forces from disintegrating? And if we're reading history backwards, everyone's going to praise Shihab and say, well, this is what happened in 1976 in Lebanon. So Shihab was smart in 58 and 52 not to commit the Lebanese armed forces, because mm, mm, once mm. the Lebanese armed forces are committed to using force, then basically that gets to a point where it might disintegrate along sectarian lines. However, the, the, your, your important point regarding this personality in terms of this person can really take a distance from everyone really has to do with the idea of who's supporting Lebanese armed forces. What are their, what is their function in reality? Mm. And to what extent have they been able to be the only remaining institution that was immediately restored and revamped after the end of the second civil war? Yes. So right. the right. world looks at the Lebanese armed forces as an institution that has a certain, uh, basically loyalty to particular individuals, particular movements, but to a certain extent has been a reliable partner in bolstering the status quo, maintaining the status quo, to a certain extent, there is this image, if you want, that bringing a candidate from a, from military, like basically trained the military and from the armed forces could find the right consensus across the board because typically in Lebanon, that has been insulated for years and years and years from the actualities of military coups does show that the armed forces to a certain extent, are one step higher, if you want, Mm. than political problems and political agendas. So there is this firm belief that Lebanon was immune to to coups, right? We only had one attempted coup that we can talk about in terms of, I would say there there was more than one, but 
in terms of literature and scholarship and what we know, we've only had one in comparison to Iraq, in comparison to neighboring right. Syria, in yeah. comparison to Jordan. So, th so the military did not get involved in politics, even though if you want to look at it from a scholarly standpoint, this was intentional. It was intentional to keep the military at bay when it comes to getting them too involved in politics. Even though Shehab made it a point under his presidency to appoint many of his colleagues that were with him in the military academy in different positions in government. And this was also something similar that we saw happen with two predecessors to our current president right now in terms of appointing people in different governments and different ministries. There is this image. And let's not forget your earlier point regarding regional powers, international powers, how much money is being funneled and invested in making sure that the armed forces remain that model of success when right. it comes to collapsing institutions in Lebanon. So the way that you frame it in terms of is this reliable model? Well, it's the only model that is available because with the exception of President Obama, right? Keep that in mind. This was a problem for Fahad Sheb as well. They never had the political party. Like Fuad Shahab did not have right. a political party when he came into right. office. Yeah. Michel Saiman did not have did not have a party. Emile Lahoud did not have a party. But the current president has a party. That's really and interesting. This is why yes. most of the most yeah. of the issues that we think about are different in terms of to what extent are we still gonna think about this model being one that is tenable or one that is actually useful or not. Right. No, but I like you know that that's when you think about it. Yeah, he is the only one. I never even thought about that. He's the first military president with, with a proper political party backing him. Yep. And, yep. you know, I, 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 so going back to the, the, the funders or where the money's coming from, and that clearly America plays a large role. Uh, before getting into America's influence and America's relationships, relationship to Lebanon, uh, the, the French decline is, is well described in this book and the distraction from Algeria. And I, I really, I, I kind, of, I can't help but see similarities right now. Even with Macron trying to sort of push the issue, I think it was leaked today that in a private call with Biden, he brought up Lebanon. But it's almost a, um, and 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 what else can you do other than just talk about it? I mean, it's that diminished influence. And I believe it's in the, um, I think it's in chapter three uh, by Sophia. Papastamku, I hope I said that right. France in the yep, Middle East, yep. 1958. Continuity and change through crisis. Um, there's a quote. The constraints the French faced before, meaning pre-1958, remained pretty much the same. They did not have the weight to make their views prevail against the United States and the UK. And they recognized that the war in Maghrib, and I think she's referring to Algeria pr primarily, did not allow them to play an yep. important role in Lebanon. I see that as sort of that's been the situation for, you know, 63 years that the French are curious, but they can't really do much. And I'm, am I being fair to France? But before we get to the U.S. and U.S. relations, mm -hmm. is, is France really just history and that their influence in Lebanon 1958 and onwards has been one of, yes, we led this mandate for two decades or so, but we haven't really had any input or any, any say since. Uh, colonial powers broadly have a problem with nostalgia, right? <laughs> and colonial powers have a problem with saying, well, it, it was quite easy the way that we had a complete way of setting up the institutions in Lebanon and in Syria. And we, were ha we had some model of success when it comes to crafting 
these countries, and they were much more stable than what the British got in terms of, if you think about Iraq, you think about mm. Palestine, or you think mm. about Jordan. But that weighs very heavily. And one of the very important highlights in the book, uh, in that chapter, but broadly about the book, is reversing that kind of thinking in terms of saying, well, if the French perceived their position that way, what did that meant for people in the Middle East? And what I mean by that, when you talk about Algeria, and when we talk about the change between the Fourth Republic and the Fifth Republic, that really had to do with the Algerian War of Independence that was occurring. Yes. So, But that's from our perspective. From the French perspective, it's been a constant drive for redeeming, restoring their position. I'll give you a quick example about Lebanon, which is quite interesting. So when they were debating in the White House, exactly after Nassib al-Mitni was killed, right? We're talking here about May 8, 1958, okay? May 7, May 8, 1958, Nassib al-Mitni is killed. There's this great, huge meeting. And I say huge for one simple reason. It's the only item on the agenda at the White House on May 13, 1958, okay? Mm. The Lebanon crisis. They're debating about whether America should get involved or not. But we're going to talk about America later. But I just want to highlight one thing about France, just to confirm that your perception is the right one. So they're talking about involvement of the British. Mm. Well, can we do this with the British? Everyone's saying no, 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 because we're worried about Suez. What happened with disruption of oil pipelines, shortages of oil? So if we're going to get involved in any shape or form in the region, be it actively when we're talking about the military, we have to keep the French out of this and the British out of that. So that's the perspective from internal meetings in America. But what's the perspective from the French ambassador? The French ambassador is really like in a different world, trying to convince his counterpart in Lebanon that France has an important role and we should not be looking at Algeria as a point of failure, but we should be looking at a point of success in redeeming Lebanon's pro-Western orientation. The Americans say, hell no, that's not gonna happen. The French are not gonna be involved in this because of their failure in Algeria. We fast forward to the future. Is it possible for America, uh, is it possible for France to be able to redeem itself in the region without the support of America? Well, much, much of the Macron initiative in terms of Macron coming to Lebanon after August 4, pushing for, trying to craft the solution and the idea of meeting with Feirouz and the idea that Lebanon, everyone, all these movements in Lebanon, like wanting to hug Macron, you're the savior all over again. Yeah. From the French standpoint, it's something that they're convinced that they're able to do. But in reality, you cannot move one inch without really having a clear strategic agenda that's going to be outlined and supported by the Americans. So I would say what, what's a fair assessment of French foreign policy has constantly been to redeem what was lost on the eve of the Suez crisis in 1956. And we see that. We see that with Turkey. We see that with Iran. We see mm -hmm. this in Iraq. Even we see it when we think about the punishment, quote unquote punishment, that the French got for not getting involved or supporting the Americans in 2003 in Iraq, right? Total was kept out of the agenda when it comes to oil. Right. This is right. a well-known documented fact that the French yes. at that point in time miscalculated in comparison to the Gulf War in 1990. In 2003, they said, we're going to really sit this one out. And they paid a very high, heavy price for it. So in terms of trying to redeem themselves in the region, trying to show that they still have a say, if you want, is a bit exaggerated because as we've seen, there are limits to their success and ability 
to even push a former colonial entity to a certain extent. And I, I say this as a scholar that many would like to draw comparisons to the nature of our laws in Lebanon, the conduct of our institutions, the military outfit, everything that we do is, is crafted to a certain extent because that is a very clear consequence of colonialism. But does that translate in Lebanon beyond 56, 57, even during the civil war in Lebanon? Actually, it does not. Even post-civil war, if you think about America and you think about Syria and you think about Ta'if and Saudi Arabia, France is there. No one can deny that. But is France there as the key architect, mm. if you want, or the right. key maker of solutions? Even in 2005, right? If you think about the Syrian revolution, you think about Shirak coming yes. to Lebanon after Hariri was killed. Yeah. It was a very important gesture in terms of France is not going to leave Lebanon. Support for Lebanon at the Security Council. But we have to think about that and look at the relationship between Western allies to be able to say, well, could French, could the, the French, if you want, independently craft a solution that's not going to basically jive well with American interests? And the obvious answer is, so far, it's been hard to pull off. And I don't think that's going to change, even with Biden right now, because with Trump, we know how how things were. But even with Biden right now, it's hard to be able to see France and Macron specifically facing problems at home with the Gilets Jaunes, facing problems at home yes. when it comes to COVID-19, to being able to uh, show a position of power or able, able to reflect domestic problems and try to gain some international successes. I, I don't see that happening in Lebanon or in Iraq or in Turkey, but I see very smart, if you want, uh, foreign policy initiatives and attempts at France trying to uh, craft a new way uh, for it to be able to regain or resource some part of its old past in the region. But it's a fair assessment, as you're saying. And, I, and unfortunately, uh, we, ha we have strong, firm believers, the Francophone community, with all due respect to the Francophone community in Lebanon, that still believe that France will not leave this country to a certain extent. But even that sentence has to be qualified in terms, is it going to keep the regime as is? Is it going to support the relief efforts? Is it going to push for a donors conference? That's something that we need to qualify when you think about French interests in the region and whether that's something that's going to change or not. You know, it's, it's almost like a, it's a split image. You have Macron showing up on Rue Gouraud and Jemaisi, you know, the centennial and the mandate is proclaimed. And like you said, photo op with Feirouz and, and hugging, you know, hugging citizens of Beirut where politicians couldn't, set, couldn't even show their face. So there's that, um, yeah. there's that love affair, maybe. And you have sanctions being issued by Washington. And that really is the story that that's, it's almost that despite all the talk about American sort of reluctance to get involved in, in any Middle Eastern issue right now, that's really what drove the story at the end is when you had powerful individuals in Lebanon sanctioned by the U.S. You go back in time, 1958, I, I love the way you described it. The Americans are deciding whether or not to send the Marines to, to Lebanon. And then you have the French sort of trying to say, you know, we have a say as well, but it's old news. This is part of the past. And America, for the better part of seven decades, has been sort of steering the ship when it, when it comes to Western sort of curiosity or Western influence in the region. Is that an appropriate way of, of describing it? 
that that regardless of every other country's sort of input, that America has been the dominant player from 1950, from maybe the mid 1950s until today, that they're the ones sort of uh, that's the Western sphere when it comes to when it comes to Lebanon and, and the region. That is the accurate way. And in reality, if you look at strategic calculations, uh, the Americans were quite savvy after the Second World War. And this is drawing on Wilson and the idea of 14-point speech and nationalism, not to portray themselves as them. And them here, we're talking about the French and the British in the Middle East, right? right. This, was yeah. a very, this was a very strong, committed idea on the American agenda after the Second World War, even though they dropped two nuclear bombs in Japan, they were trying to show at least in the Middle East that they had no hidden intentions. In my chapter, I touch on these dynamics, right? And I focus on what America tried to do in terms of becoming the dominant Western patron did not happen at the expense of a complete shift or destroying the existing order. What they did in reality was trying to redeem remnants of the British and the French and the order that they tried to create by keeping some distance from it. And the fascinating part about this from a scholarly standpoint is that in 1953, they did not keep a distance, right? They engineered a coup against Mohammed Mossadegh, removed him, reinstalled the Shah, and they left the British take the credit for it for years and years and years. MI6 did this operation. In reality, we know right now from the archives, it was MI6 and CIA. But still, when it came to working with Nasser, in the 50s, when it came to accommodating Nasser, when it came to thinking about the Swiss crisis and the position that the Eisenhower administration took at the UN against its closest allies and Israel at that point in time, was to demonstrate to the Arabs that we don't have any hidden intentions and we actually shun colonial practices, while at the same time, they were becoming the gradual and dominant Western patron, but trying to do it mostly, as you mentioned, through economic inducements, mm. covered mm. action, and limited uses of force. That was no longer tenable uh, before the Civil War, and it was no longer tenable after the Civil War. But for pretty much thinking about this moment in the Middle East, if you want, after 1947-48 and the beginning of the Cold War, it was really an intention for America to be able to demonstrate and show that we're not going to be like them in terms of using an actual form of direct intervention or new forms of new imperialism, but we're going to run the show in different ways. So we're going to support coups. We're going to provide economic inducements. We're going to provide strategic weapons. We're going to make sure that we're going to keep the balance of power in check. And here you can talk about, well, how upset the Americans were from the French when they sold Israel their first nuclear reactor. And then when the world right, knew right. that Israel was starting to build this nuclear bomb, and then you fast forward to Lebanon in the mid-70s, and you think about before the Civil War, what was the American position at that point in time, right? Supporting the government while at the same time pressing the government to be stronger, if you want, in terms of taking decisive action against the PLO and other armed groups in Lebanon to stop basically directing cross-border raids and attacks against Israel. So when you think of, when you frame it that way, uh, they were leading the show, but they weren't leading the show in a way where they wanted to completely replace the French and the British. Because if you think about the British in 1970s, they were still in the Gulf, right? Up to 1970, 1971, 1972, British were still there. The French were still suffering in Northern Africa. But they were there 
air, right? But America was calling the show, was pulling all the all the strings, but they did not revamp the system by saying we're just going to replace them in '56 up to '58 and just start the new American-led order. They called it a Western-led order, intentionally yeah. to make mm. sure that mm. they're not upsetting their the side. Your characterization of really six, seven decades in, uh, it's very clear that America is chiefly responsible for what, how we think about the West in the region and how we think about the limits of Western interests in the region, even though there are episodes where you can still see British doing things and others, but America has the final say, and that really has to do with the idea that there was one remaining superpower at the end of the Cold War that was undefeated, that was unchecked, and we didn't see a coalition of actors or states really rise up to the occasion and say, well, what to do with this only remaining superpower? So America was allowed in the early 90s to craft and, and really lead the liberal international order, even though it was brought to the table and it was brought to forth for discussion. If you think about it for a moment, the period between 1990 and 2001 was not the best of eras for US foreign policy. If you think about the first Gulf War, yes. you think about 1993 in Saudi Arabia, 1995 in Saudi Arabia, and then you fast forward to the bombings of the embassy in Western Africa in 1998. Uh, you, you think about all these episodes while America was standing on its own, and then you have fast forward to 9-11, you get another story where the right. French and British, everyone really wants to support America with this global war on terror, but it also came at the expense that America was footing the bill in many cases, and it, it actually got swamped in, in many wars, specifically in the Middle East, that they are still trying to get out of right now. And when you think about that cost that was incurred on the French and the British, they did incur costs, but they're nothing in comparison to what America has actually been through in the last decades, uh, two decades, if you want, and more. And that comes at the price that if you're going to take the lead, then you're going to have to pay the price. And this is something that was mentioned so many times with American diplomats when they went to the UN and tried to maneuver and get out of Iraq. If you break it, you own it, right? It became very famous in a way of you went in to dismantle a regime and a system you can't come to the world right now and say, why aren't you helping me restore or rebuild Iraq? And the same argument holds true to other misadventures and mishaps that have actually been very clear, uh, a clear indicator and characteristic of U.S. foreign policy and actions for not only since 9-11, but I would say much more earlier. And this is something we can talk more about. But for the better part of the Cold War and afterwards, we've seen the limits of that Western that order and what that entailed to not only people in the region, states in the region, but also if you're thinking about the consolidation of authoritarian politics and what we saw unravel in 2011, yes. yeah. that is a response to an American supported led order that actually allowed for the regime in Egypt to sustain and Tunisia to sustain, even in Syria, to a large extent, if you want to talk about Syria, in Lebanon, and the argument holds that it was too late. And this is something that uh, was fascinating in Obama's memoirs when he talks about the limits of U.S. foreign policy after 2010, 2011. And it's all written in, in couched in terms of uh, I was very limited in my agency to be able to say that we were aware of these problems, but we wanted to do something new, but it didn't work. Right. And, and this is sort of a mea culpa moment, but it's a good testament coming from uh, uh, the former president of the United States of America to say that we thought this was exceptional, but 
the other argument of it was, what did we do to bolster the existing regimes for decades? And then we're surprised when we see there is a challenge in the street. And the same argument holds if we, if we fast forward to 2019 in Lebanon, we can see some of that. And I'm happy to talk more if you want yeah. about comparisons there. No, but actually that's, that's perfect way to, to sort of lead to the next topic. I, I, um, I mean, you know, two years ago or so, maybe three years ago, there was this maybe confusion whether or not the Lebanese army was going to receive aid from the U.S., I think it was along the lines of $80 million, maybe. I don't remember mm-hmm, the exact mm-hmm. figure. but And there was panic that if the, Amer- if the Americans do not sort of send that money, the Lebanese army will, at a, will be at a disadvantage. So that America is still heavily involved, that you can't really dislodge. The American, uh, the American influence is there. And it's, like you said, it goes into that one institution primarily that's seen as one step above or it's portrayed as not political. Therefore, it's that neutral body for all of its, I mean, all the discussions that come with it aside, it's portrayed that way. There's a cable that you quote, or sorry, not, not, not you. It's going back to chapter 13. It's Caroline Ati. It's a cable from 1956. And I'm just going to use it because I think you, this could have happened yesterday. <laughs> and this is a quote from a U.S. State Department intelligence report Um, It starts off by saying, confessionalism precludes development of a genuine sense of national unity, yet paradoxically promotes stability since government in Lebanon is perforce government by compromise. The two main influencers that shape the course of Lebanon, confessionalism and commercialism, and they militate against radical change. I mean, that could have come from David Hale or David Schenker or one of these ambassadors that have gone through Alka recently. That's it's so relevant to the moment. And I'm going to introduce the beginning of the book. It's a beautiful quote. And I, I don't know if these are your words directly, but I love the way it just, it, it's perfect. To all the revolutionaries who fought bravely against injustice and cruelty, and the ones who are still daring to reimagine and create a better world. I sense, and I, I, I hope I get this right, that you're very sympathetic to the protesters demanding change that they're not the bad guys in the story. That in other words, whether it's 1958 or 2019, even if they're fundamentally different stories, there are decent people yearning for a better way. And the Middle East has sort of gone completely the other direction, yet they're still trying. And then you have a protest movement that started in 2019 and is like you said at the beginning, there's things happening still on the street, whether it's Tripoli the last two days, whether it's Beirut, that you have this determination to keep trying. And then you have the larger story that sort of the politics of the region and international affairs in America. And I'm just gonna posit a question and we can sort of break it down in, in many different ways. America sends Marines in 1958 sort of it, it 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 helps change the dynamics here and suddenly you have Fouedge Heb and Camille Shamon is sort of not able to stay around even if he wants to 2019-2020 you have not the Americans but maybe regional countries that are able now to determine exactly who sticks around and who doesn't whether certain sort of uh, players are beneficial or not 
And it seems like paralysis is the preferred arrangement for these powers for the moment, just like sending the Marines and Fuedjheb was seen as a better outcome. Is there anything there? Just trying to link the two periods together and why we're in this paralysis right now. So let me begin by saying that uh, the words that you read is, is my dedication to, these are my words, dedicating this book to a category that is really out of time, right? It's a category that I would not want to think about in the 50s mm. or think about in the 20s or think about in the 1860s or think about in 2019, but it's going to have shelf life because the idea of change and trying to imagine a better world is a constant drive. And, and on purpose, when I wrote this, it took more time than writing the chapter, than editing the volume. <laughs> Being able to reflect in a few words of this is a, like really putting out the argument that revolutions are, are very messy processes. They don't happen overnight. They take time. But if they are driven by a genuine, genuine change or a genuine drive, then they are more likely to be able to materialize into better outcomes. But the problem there is that when we think about the agency of local movements and the fatigue component that goes into being able to really chart a new path, we have to think about it as if it's not an isolated incident, right? You, th you talk about the Marines in 1958. What did the Marines do in 1958? You exactly mentioned a very clear way of saying they went into Lebanon to sustain the pro-Western regime and replace an individual. It was never about protecting Shamaun, right? Right. This, has, this yeah. was very clear from the American standpoint. It was about protecting the banking sector, the uh, pro-Western orientation of the regime, bearing in mind that they knew that this regime, and this is the fascinating part about looking at archives, they knew the ills of sectarianism in terms of a compromise that needs another compromise that needs another compromise. But we have to keep in mind, and this is how I'm going to link both 1958 and 2019, Great powers usually do not like change, right? Let's be honest about it. They like mm. the status quo. Mm. They like what works for them. This is why much of the discussions in Obama's memoirs about the first wave of Arab uprisings in Tunisia and in Egypt and elsewhere were like, we were, we were not surprised, but we never thought it's going to materialize that way. So if I think about Lebanon for a moment and I compare it to 1958, they knew that this ingredient that in Lebanon, that is only a very tenuous way of thinking about compromises, is not going to solve the ills, the chronic ills of the system. However, if it maintains the country's tilt, the, the country's role, like what has been called as a merchant republic, mm, its yes. role in, in energy security and energy policy, America's role and view in Lebanon as being a pillar in Zahrani and Tripoli at that point in time, and even expectations right now with whether we have gas or not and what that materializes, shows that problem. And I'll give you a small example. Um, so the uprising begins in Lebanon on October 17th, right? And then on October 18th, I would say the entire, I don't know, I'm, let's put it this way, put it mildly, 20% of people in Lebanon take to the street. We did see tens of thousands of people in the street. Uh, the first American response or American cable that is out in the public comes from a State Department official almost 13 days in. 13 oh. days in. So if you go on the State Department's website and the embassy in Lebanon also pushes and publishes parts that are related to Lebanon, 
you'd see that the first statement came something like between October 29 and October 30, huh. talking about the agency of Lebanese people, their drive, their ability to change, their ability to call for a change, and knowing that Lebanon is a very miserable country when it comes to rulers not being held accountable. It's, yes. it's yes. quoted in a diplomatic way. But then you look at that document, and then you look at the same debate that, as you mentioned, resurfaced a couple of years ago regarding withholding aid, right? Or different uh, U.S. policymakers and diplomats coming to Lebanon refusing to meet with the elite, right? Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. not wanting to meet with the elite. Okay, that's great in terms of uh, a position. But in terms of substance, who's, who's bolstering the regime or bolstering the status quo? And to what extent are we going to be able to reconcile grievances of people in the street that are broadly under the category of revolutionaries trying to chart a new path, mm. how will that get reconciled with U.S. foreign policy goals when it comes to not wanting change? What's the alternative? We see that in Syria, right? Bashar al-Assad should, should still in office after the massacres of hundreds of thousands of Syrians. And I'm sorry to put it that way, but that is the reality with the support of the Russian government and the support of local proxies in Lebanon. This is, it's, it's, an op- it's not an open secret anymore. Everyone knows this, right? Mm. If you think about that for a moment and you, and you look at the possibilities of what's going to come after Assad, there is no American response that they are really willing to support a transitional, a tra- a transitional government or some shape or form. You bring yeah. that into Lebanon, what is the alternative in Lebanon? Are they going to work with revolutionary groups that are, made of professors and artists and scholars and students and uh, labor, laborers, laborers or uh, taxi drivers or bus drivers or, or shop owners. This is not a viable alternative when it comes to policy. Unfortunately, I say that. And, and the argument here is that, well, the revolutionary groups should have better organized if they had better organized and they had actually presented the alternative then things would have been different. But it doesn't work that way. What we know from American foreign policy, and if I just want to draw... Another comparison between 1958 and 2019 Mm -hmm. is that strong powers, great powers, always prefer working with existing contenders and existing status quo. They do not like change. They do not not like revisionist actors. If they liked revisionist actors, they would have not supported coups, provided economic aid, provided economic assistance in many countries where they thought there was some shift, right? And if you think about the Shah in the 70s, it wasn't something that they wanted to accept in 1976-1977 in Iran that the Shah is in danger. It wasn't something that they were willing to accept and mm-hmm. be able to say that this part of our twin pillar strategy, this very important asset in American foreign policy in the region, is failing, right? But they didn't want to admit because they didn't know what didn't really know how to work with the alternative. And the same thing applies to thinking about Lebanon and thinking about even if you look at 2005, right? Much of the discussion about 2005 in terms of the Syrian revolution was really against the, Syri- against the Syrian occupation, right. really pushing for the implementation of 1559, really disarming all militias in the country. But when it came to practicality, they looked around and the same political class was reinvented, was recreated, and they bolstered the same political class, bearing in mind that the political class at that point in time had a new awakening of what is commonly known as the Second Republic. But when it comes down to it, they could not think about the alternative of what was broadly starting to become an active role of civil society. And we move forward to 2015. You think about youth think, what is the viable? What is the viable alternative? We look at the elections 2018. 
how many civil society activists were able to crack that ceiling and enter parliament. Two people and then one person was dropped through a technicality when yeah. it comes to how the counts, how the electoral ballots were counted or not. So you fast forward 2019 and you would say, well, these are bold moves, right? We're not going to meet with political leaders in Lebanon. We're, we're, we're going to meet with activists. And then the assistant undersecretary of the Near East does meet with some of these individuals, right? Yeah. From some of these groups. Yeah. But how does that really translate into you're still providing support to the regime? You're still providing support to the most important institution. So any kind of comparison from the Cold War beyond the Cold War needs to take into account that if we're looking at domestic expressions of support, they're abundant, right? We support the agency, uh, the people are, are free. But again, there's an agenda there, right? What's the agenda? Mm-hmm. If it's about, and, and this is where I wrote uh, a critical article about uh, former ambassador to Lebanon, Jeffrey Feldman's uh, testimony, basically, talking about what to do in Lebanon to Brookings. And I wrote a very harsh, and I would say very uh, uh, accurate, critical take on the limits of whether we should frame everything that's happening in the street as against Hezbollah. Right. I think, yes, this is going back to the beginning of the protest, right? It was maybe November, December. Yes, right. November 2019. And whether we should take stock into that and be able to say, like, in a way, it was selling everyone in the street at that point in time. That if you were to change or if you were to adopt this course that's going to make it clear that you're for dismantling this militia and you're for implementing UNC resolutions, then your likelihood of getting success from the world is going to be better, right? And I'm not saying this is the goal or not, but what I'm trying to reflect on is that even if you want to read that document and say, well, maybe some people in the street were genuine about the only way to solve the chronic ills of the regime really has to, has to come by going against the guardians of the regime. And who are the guardians? A handful of institutions and a handful of political parties and the same political elite that happen to reinvent and recreate themselves. But from the American standpoint, if you look at it in 1958 or 2019 and you drop the pronouns of supporting President X or President Y, it's coming back to the same thing. We know that there are problems with confessionalism. We know that there are problems with this compromise model. But this is the only system that we're going to be able to sustain because it's the only system that we've seen been so resilient all these years, has been able to show that it's successful in mitigating crises, cracking down on opposition movements, and not allowing any contenders or revisionist actors to enter the political scene. Bearing in mind that if you look at the political chessboard in the 1950s and you compare it to 2019 we do have new players on it but these new players have been basically they've been there since the civil war so they've earned their seat by being warlords and they've earned their seat by playing the same networks patronage networks clientelist networks you really using resources from the government to be able to build up the masses and build up their bases of support and bases of loyalty but if you look at it from the American standpoint, why would you want to work for something that's shaky, not able to really win in the elections, not able to really show that with everything that's been going on, people have become hesitant, they're tired, they're worried from COVID-19. And the push that we saw, if we want to think about 2019 and really fast forward to 2021, I'm not saying it has dissipated, it has not dissipated, it's still there. But let's put it this way. It's really on a slow cooker. It's really like it's at the point where right now that 
it's there will be another cycle there will be another phase and it's clear that this is going to happen but what do you do with other problems that are constant when you think about great power interests when you think about support of the regime when you think about the regime's ability to internationalize the biggest non nuclear explosion in the history not of lebanon of the world be able to capitalize on it and seek support and relief efforts and then when you fast forward to thinking about where is our agency it's still there tripoli you know more than anyone like when you look at tripoli your heart explodes in a way of saying well these people have two choices like we're we're going to eat or we're going to buy a mask and they're saying it they're yeah. saying it out loud they're not yeah. really like mincing their words and then there's a government that promises that we're going to begin this application and system for people to apply for money and then if they receive the money this is like sort of one of those uh surreal characterizations of Lebanese politics on a daily basis and then you think about it from the perspective of well chances of what have, would have been in 2019 it's something that i touch on in the introduction of the book that when we think about revolutionary we need to be very clear that it's not going to make it or break it within a short period of time but just the idea of calling for a change demanding for a change maintaining some kind of normalcy when it comes to this is no longer acceptable is really part of the bigger ingredients that we need that will create the perfect storm and that perfect storm is going to come in phases it's not going to basically begin with a certain time point and then end at a certain point and even though we we're all fancy looking at certain dates right we like we fancy sort of 2005 2015 2013 2011 these are important markers for us to be able to analyze but in terms of thinking about when was it that point where things really changed or things started to become better it's very clear that if you look at the reversal processes that have occurred since the first wave and the second wave we shouldn't have any hope right but if you think about the long durée of the possibilities that this is going to take time this is going to lead this is going to lead it's going to take organization the grievances are there the system is not responding but again the biggest problem i would say i'm not saying this only because i'm a scholar of international relations but i'm saying it from the vantage point of comparing looking at the past and analyzing the present and trying to aspire what's going to happen in the future is that we we are caught in the middle of regional bickering we are caught in the middle of international bickering and we are caught in basically in a, in a place where uh it's very hard to imagine a uh, a world where we're just going to wake up and just look at the entire political class that cannot be held accountable to anything just pick, pack up their bags and leave and i don't see that happening and yeah. right now but maybe i have to be more hopeful and think that maybe through elections but we've been down that road to a certain extent yeah and yeah but i i'm going to just this as subjective and i mean i'm putting you on the spot here is is it the threat of is it the threat or in itself political violence that keeps diminishing these continued attempts or aspirations whether it's in the 1950s or whether it's today that the 1958 it's a it's a marine intervention there's 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 a brief civil war there's i mean the, the military is involved less than i mean it's just 1975 is around the corner and it's before 1975 really 1970 the state begins to crumble 
and then you have militia involved and you have the threat of war. You have competing militia that contribute to the breakdown of the state. 2005, there is that aspiration for sovereignty and independence and an end to Syrian hegemony in Lebanon. String of assassinations. We have the 2008 events. We have the brink of another civil war. 2015 is, a, is really maybe a, it's sort of shielded a bit in that it was really accountability and corruption for a very small, limited time. And it wasn't nationwide, really. It was a Beirut story. But 2019, it really is the evolution of 2015. And it, it takes hold. And now you're seeing the threats that are familiar, whether it's from proxies, whether it's from the political class, whether it's really anything where we're seeing right now in Tripoli, internal security getting involved in ways that they, they haven't in the past. Is that the ultimate, pro is that the main stumbling block here? That it's, these are aspirations that deserve their chance, yet violence or the threat of violence, intimidation, keeps the old ways persisting. And the old ways, I think that quote from 1956, that cable between confessionalism and commercialism, that's, these are the two things that matter at the end of the day to Lebanon. That's almost, almost saying that power sharing and capitalism, if you have those things in check, Lebanon's fine. When that's touched on, when that's played with, you have breakdown. And I, I don't want to be rude or any, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to blame in any way protesters that are not able to yield change. On the contrary, it's trying to understand why it's, it seems like it's an endless, an endless process with the long durée that you're, you're referring to that we may see positive change later. And it is good to sort of lengthen it out a bit, but 2021 seems so bleak and, and at the same time familiar. It, it feels familiar. It's like 1980s, it's 2008. It's probably what our parents used to tell us about in the early 1970s and 75, 76. 1958 probably had that kind of feeling as well, that there's this force that, that prevents the natural maybe evolution of what should, have what, what should have taken hold and didn't. And really just from your own research, your own, maybe your, your subjective view, why it's so hard to actually deliver change. And, and with the aspirations and the hopes of those revolutionaries that, that you eloquently referred to at the beginning. To be quite honest, uh, and, and, and this is really like uh, on a subjective level or even on objective level, both being subjective or objective. And, and I don't believe to a certain extent that when it comes to ideas of change that there, there is really an objective way of understanding it or measuring it. So I love that you underscored subjectivity because it is at the end of the day, a very personal experience when it comes to what qualifies for a genuine change. But the way that you described it was that there hasn't been a moment in Lebanon since 1943 up till 2021 where we've seen just through protests or sit-ins or demonstrations some kind of needed or sort of a change that different groups are trying to aspire or trying to lead or trying to craft. And I, I'm not saying it in a way that violence is the solution, but what's clear from your uh, 
the way that you've analyzed this, and I think it's an accurate, a very accurate one, is that there's always this fear factor. And that fear factor has been replaced over the years with creating on the level of the state, there's always a them category. The them category creates fear on so many levels, whether it was Palestinian refugees or if it's Syrian refugees right now. There's always an element that the security situation has to be maintained because on the long run, that's the only thing that's going to keep us all safe in terms of our commercial role and in terms of works in this country because we're going to use the factor of going to another civil war as the psychological pressure point that no one wants to think of, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're, We're brought into this world worried that anytime we hear something's happening, some two clans are shooting at one another or what you described regarding May 7,008, which in reality, that these skirmishes in Beirut and in Mount Lebanon, in Shuf and Alay, there is no other definition from a textbook definition, but say that that was also a mini civil war, right? We wanna avoid that because we wanna pride ourselves by saying Lebanon has not been to war since 1990, which is not true in reality. Right. Yeah. If you think about it in terms of skirmishes and, and just, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, the string of assassinations, what are those? Are these semblances of what? Are they semblances of peace or tranquility or stability? <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, they're clear episodes that we're going to use violence in order to ensure that any call for change or any call for any drastic revamping of the status quo is not going to be tolerated. And unfortunately, I say this, and I say this as a Lebanese American, observing this in America and observing this in Lebanon, writing about it, thinking about it, debating about it. And it's not because I'm talking with you on this episode or talking with you on this network, but thinking about the individuals that were actually chosen and that were assassinated between, or attempted at being assassinated between 2004 up till, I would say, hopefully this will not be renewed is a clear testament to not, not only activists, not only revolutionaries, not only protesters, that there is a fear factor of stability, mm. right? We're going to have new sleeper cells that are going to be activated. We're going to have a new war with Israel. We're going to have mm. a new civil war. So the constant fear when it comes to change is that there is a price to pay. But when it comes to the element of paying that price, the actual genuine change, and this is where I'm, I'm saying it's not about being subjective or objective, but if I want to learn from the past, there's always been a price of love, right? And we've paid that price tremendously. It's not right. something that we are not accustomed to when it comes to calling for a change or when it's being critical of the regime. We've had journalists assassinated because they critiqued what we mean by coercive institutions in the government being supported right. by regional entities or what we mean by the role of the military. This is, not, this is not an overstatement. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. We've had members of parliament. We've had ministers. We've had military officials that actually tried to, within the milieus of this political game, try to craft an alternative, and that was not tolerated. There were, that was not tolerated by the same architects of the system that don't want any radical change. So let's think about that on that level and bring it down to a normal human being, right? A normal individual that actually is trying to look for some sense of dignity in a country that really deprives people from basic goods and services and necessities, trying to reimagine that they want something new and they can do it through the ballot box. They've tried the ballot box, doesn't work. 
Right. They've yeah. tried taking this street. It doesn't, it doesn't work. So if we're thinking about what is our last hope, if you want, and then we think about when did we have some kind of transformational moment, not genuine change, but some breaking point. Unfortunately, what comes to mind is the instances of violence. And I don't say that unfortunately because I'm being subjective here and saying I endorse violence or not. I'm talking here about aspects of change mm -hmm. do require a toolkit that's going to be more than just chanting, more than just writing statements. It has to include some element that basically uh, we are going to be looking for that change and trying to do something about it. And by doing something about it, this is where the repertoire has to be widened. And unfortunately in Lebanon, we cannot deny that our generation is suffering from the trauma that our parents lived through in the civil war and the trauma that we lived through growing up in Lebanon after the assassinations 2004-2005, the war in 2006, and the war in 2008. So we've had our fair share of setbacks and our fears when it comes to, well, let's just leave. Let's pack our bags and leave because this is not going to happen. But I'm hopeful about one thing, Roni, when we think about change. I'm really hopeful because when you think about change or if you want to compare it to any revolution that occurred in the world, it was never about the entire population taking to the street, mm -hmm. everyone wanting change. There's lots of free riding that occurs in revolutionary moments. We've seen a lot of free riding where people try to benefit and say, and I, I, I like to quote this a lot when, when we were taking, when we were in the streets in 2019 as professors, as university, as scholars, working with students, working with everyone across the board, we constantly had a, re a recurrent theme of, well, if this succeeds, I'll be the first to be in the street. And that came from our parents' generation that are fed up of the possibilities of change in Lebanon. So right. I know this from my parents. I know this from my in-laws. I know that from that, their generation is like, it's not going to work. Lebanon, it's not going to change. It's, it's, it's people like Lebanon that way because it has a purpose to play. It has a role to play in international politics in the foreign policy orientations and goals of regional powers. So good luck with what you're doing. We really support you, but we will be in the street once. And I'm not gonna name names just to, to keep this as objective as possible. Once we see person X in jail, once we see person Y, y basically hung up on some tree in Seht al-Shahada and Martyr Square, just to redeem a small token of everything that's been going on for the past 25 years, then I will believe that change is possible. And if you're, you're going against a argument fatigue, you're going up against an argument that change does not work. You're going up against an argument that there is a level of impatience. You're going up and against an argument of a regime that has survived in one shape or form for at least 31 years. If we're just talking about the post-Taif moment, yeah. that's been able to reinvent itself, recreate itself, know where to give compromises, know where to offer compromises. If you think about Lebanon right now, we're going to have, I will not have, I, you, I know that you will not have, and many like us will not think, quote unquote, about this uh, very nice political ploy regarding the vaccine, right? That we're going to bring the vaccine, even though countries that are like, if you think about America, you think about Germany, you think about France, the numbers right now are showing that maybe most, most of their elderly will not be vaccinated before August 2021. But in Lebanon, there's a very strong propaganda campaign going on that in early February, we're going to have them and we're going to have, and I, I want to be hopeful that that's going to happen. But how much is that going to dissuade more and more people? And you mentioned something that's exactly extremely important going back from the book. The idea of creating a government of technocrats. How much did that really curtail 
or bringing in to many people that were in the street that felt that this is something we demanded, right? We want the mm-hmm. government of technocrats. Mm-hmm. So let's give them a chance. Let's give them a chance. Maybe they're different. How much mm-hmm. did that really like lead to a breaking point in the street that some of our goals are being met? And every now and then we see that, right? We're going to remove the governor of the central bank. Yeah. We're going to do X. We're going to do Y. All these small compromises. But in terms of the actual change, people are afraid. And, and if you want to think about the factors of fear that did not exist, I would think about it in terms of time. The first 12 days of the uprising after October 17, until the Harida government uh, resigned, did not include any... Uh, the, the first evening we had some repression from the government, but I would say it's nothing in, in, in comparative terms to what unraveled after October 29, October 30 when the president of the Republic took a decision with the armed forces that we're not yes, going to allow any right. protesters to block roads. Yeah. That was a game changer. And that was a game changer to many in the street where even I'm not going to judge, right? I don't want to judge, but people that took to the street on Sundays to experience the Thawra, quote unquote, I'm going to experience the Thawra in all shapes and forms. I want to see the music aspect of it. I'm not saying that people should be all focused on one kind of way of doing revolutions. The beauty of revolution is that it is an inclusive space for everyone to share partake, show their voice, express their voices in any shape or form that they want. But that ended once the government decided very swiftly that we're not going to allow, we're not going to tolerate any blocking of roads anymore. We're not going to allow any taxes anymore. And they started using old methods that we were accustomed to when we were living under Syrian hegemony. So how do you remove that from people's minds? Because they've seen it. They've heard of assassinations. We, we know of people that were close to us that actually were close to an explosion somewhere, people that died, people that actually left the country. How do you remove that, that traumatic experience from our minds, from everyone's minds, and be able to say, well, this is going to happen? There is a breaking point, and that breaking point, we're going to get to it. But can mm-hmm. I predict when? No. No one can really predict when that breaking point is going to occur. But what you're describing right now, I think it's beyond a perfect storm, right? The value of the dollar, money being blocked, uh, COVID-19, no measurements on the level of the government, the ammonium nitrate being left at the port for people to drive by there on days, the blood that's still in the streets, the apartments that are still shattered, people that have actually left the country, don't want to come back, families that have lost loved ones. But you cannot get out of that and say, well, why aren't people back in the street? But it's obvious that yeah. we have all the ingredients for uh what will happen as a second phase or a second cycle on this. And just looking at Tripoli yesterday and the aspect of violence that you can think of in terms of people being tear gassed during Corona is really unheard of, even though not to put Lebanon on an exceptional scale, it's also happening in America. It happened in America. It's happening in France. It's happening in Chile, but in Lebanon, it's surreal because the poorest of the poor are basically, we can talk about, some kind of conspiracy theories. They're being orchestrated by country X. They're being pushed by politician Y to sort of try to score some something with another politician in Tripoli. And unfortunately, I personally hate descriptions of someone's running the show in Tripoli as if people don't have agency to do it on their own or as if people are not really genuinely hungry to be in the street and demanding some kind of change. But we saw the response yesterday and we saw that many media platforms we're somewhat completely silent about what was going on, waiting to see if this is going to turn to something bigger. 
But that also comes at the expense of people outside of Tripoli, even though something was happening in Beirut, something was happening in GE, something was happening uh, in, in, in different parts around, around the country. The idea of access to information with our phones, getting, getting the ability to look at new pictures, what's going on, has been a very important driving force, but not sufficient to be able to ask people to risk taking to the street again right now, knowing that there are no places in the hospitals, knowing that the government will use every method that they have in their book in terms of repression. They, are, they were not held accountable, even though they all knew that ammonium nitrate was being stored at a location that people drive by there on a daily basis, where people have homes, where people have businesses. And this sense of impunity, if you want, when we think about, I'm, I'm bigger than that, right? It's the same thing that we can go back in time and see many leaders doing the same thing. Like, it's not about me, it's really about them. The us versus them category has become a very important way of pushing any calls for change. Yeah. But in reality, weakening the any kind of genuine call for social political reform. And no one can deny that the October uprising with all different faces and shapes and forms to a certain extent was really cross sectarian, was really ag- across classes. It did not really include leaders per se that were running the show. It was not only in Beirut, as you mentioned, it was everywhere in the country. And there was a genuine moment that there is a possibility. Was that possibility eclipsed with small compromises? Well, this is Lebanon, not only in 1958, this is Lebanon in 1943, this yeah. is Lebanon in 1860. We live in a country where we thrive, unfortunately, on these small compromises. And everyone tells you in Lebanon, as you mentioned from that cable, if we get money back to the country, and I'm happy with the political class as is, if you give me access to my dollars right now, I'll be fine with, I don't care X or Y or Z who's in power. And once you hear that, it shows an element of stress, an element of, to a certain extent, I would say not only mental exhaustion, but also an element of depression. It's like, we're not, we're not gonna be able to do anything, right? So let's just accept what it is, but let's try to fix some parts of it. And that's what's been happening, fixing parts of it, even though personally, and this is where I'm being subjective, I know things were not told that way, even though this is something that your dad, Ali, and, and my parents keep on saying, right? That uh, we knew it was going to get better. It's just a matter of fears, right? Just give it a bit of time and things will get better, right? It didn't happen. They're like, and, and with us, maybe we shouldn't be losing hope. But from my end, and from my opinion, to be quite honest, and being, being a scholar that works on these issues, that looks at US foreign policy, that looks at politics of change, that looks at revolutions in the Middle East, well, it's going to take time. I can't determine when. But, but being able to break that fear barrier, and it was broken, means that it will be broken again. But what will the government do in response? What will the coercive institutions do in response? Are we going to see more moments of repression, more intimidation tactics? Are we going to see massive arrests? Are we going to see the typical uh, response that, that happens in unpopular regimes and that are borderline that, you, that have the semblance or substance of being called a democracy, but in reality, when you look at the actual practice of how we do things, uh, that's not going to be really easy to convince anyone that change is even possible. But we live uh, on a daily basis and remind on a daily basis, and this is hard. You, you can't drive anywhere in Beirut, not because of the restrictions of the corona, of the lockdown, but you can't drive anywhere in Beirut and not come across people that have given up their life whether 
none of it's by choice to be quite honest fighting for creating a better path yeah. for for really pushing for a change and we have vivid reminders anywhere that we drive from the civil war before the civil war during the civil war after the civil war after 2005 and i hope that this uh show quote unquote uh that's really full of blood and terror ends right but again uh it's always been used as a tactic and when we think about it as a tactic, unfortunately, from a scholar's perspective, it's bound to be repeated. From a perspective of a citizen wanting to live in a country that's going to provide better opportunities for its own people, provide a taxation that's going to be fair, provide social services that are going to be basically what's needed in this country, having a social nut, thinking about problems in terms of education, thinking about problems in terms of society, I would want to think that there might be an alternative to everyday politics, but it's the easiest to the regime. It's the easiest in order to maintain stability and it's the easiest to maintain the status quo and ensure that revisionist voices and any form of revolutionary actors are kept at bay. And I say that knowing that we have exceptions and we've seen exceptions, but also we've seen reversal processes. Uh, will things become better after COVID-19? Whenever that moment happens, I don't know. But looking at the news and following what was going on and what's still going on in Lebanon the last couple of days, if anything, it shows that, well, there is a glimpse of hope that has not really yet been completely dissipated, even though we know thousands of people, our friends, our colleagues are leaving, right? Yeah. Are leaving, one-way tickets, never, never wanting to come back. But hopefully... Uh, we will be able to a certain extent to uh, build up on this genuine moment that was not orchestrated by anyone, but the people themselves that we saw happen in 2019. And we can recall other moments that were also equally genuine. Uh, and hopefully we could look at this and say that it's going to take time, but we will get there, right? Hopefully. I don't know anyone who could say better than that. You found a way to offer hope and astute caution. <laughs> In other words, this is not going to happen tomorrow for all the reasons you described and that honoring these attempts before and in a way reimagining uh, years that we maybe we don't think of often, whether it's 1958 or other periods that this part of the world deserves a break and it deserves a, a better future and a brighter future. And even though things are bleak right now, you're offering that window at the end that it's just, like you said, it's a perfect storm for everything that could go wrong to Lebanon went wrong. That doesn't mean the appetite or the aspirations are gone, quite the contrary. And for anyone listening, uh, there are links to your to the Middle East in 1958 in the episode's details box. I want to emphasize that it's not just about Lebanon, even though that's where we kind of narrowed down the conversation, but it touches on the whole, touches on the whole region. And uh, I recommend it. I highly recommend it. And uh, thank you for entertaining me when I have a sore throat. I hope it didn't sound too sore today. That's my, my remedy here is tea and honey trying to push through. Jeffrey, you're very generous with your time. And thank you for really, really, uh, in a way, offering me a lot of, uh, a lot of perspective on a year that I, I always claim to understand didn't. And uh, I, I appreciate this conversation. I also like the, I like the careful optimism and the long durée that you mentioned regularly. 
I think it's a healthy way of understanding and sort of being patient with what's happening. And I, I always, I always appreciate the, the larger picture, which you eloquently offer today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.